It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. The former CEO of Virgin Money, now a tech entrepreneur, Dame Jane Ann Garia has always done things a little differently. As a teenager, she was six feet tall and one of the first few girls to attend a boys' school. The boys used to uh, scream at me um, in horror when they saw me and I remember that being hard and feeling that I couldn't tell my mother about it. As a young British woman, she married an Indian man. People were horrified that I was going to be marrying an Indian man. I remember that very clearly and being heartbroken that that's the way that the world thought. I remember actually um, being chased through the streets of Norwich by someone who said he wanted to kill me because of it. And as one of the most successful women in Britain's financial services industry, she made the most of the lockdown by launching a business called Snoop. The really interesting thing is, if you'd have asked me beforehand, could we launch through lockdown when we don't aren't actually physically together, I'd have said no, it'll be really difficult, you know. I caught up with Jane Ann and had a wide-ranging conversation during which we talked about her new business, the power of being different, her battle with depression, experience with racism, and much more. Here's my conversation. So Jane Ann, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you, Malika. Now, during the lockdown, people have been baking, people have been gardening. You launched a business during the lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, tell us about Snoop, the new business you've launched. What is Snoop? So Snoop uh, uses people's data to snoop on big companies and banks, basically, for their own benefit. So it's trying to turn around what we know has happened in history for such a long time, which is that the big companies have sort of always had the advantage. So the intention is to put the advantage with the consumer. And uh, it, it came to pass because I ran Virgin Money, which is one of the larger challenger banks in the UK, for a number of years. Um, and that was acquired by the Clydesdale Bank back in October 2018. Gosh, a long time ago now. Uh, and the Clydesdale had already got their own digital strategy. I had my own digital banking team. But um, that team were let go when the Clydesdale bought the business. And they came to see me and said, why don't we set up our own digital bank? And uh, someone, a close friend and colleague of mine said, oh, let's not do banking again. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, we don't want the regulatory and capital requirements that go with, or with banking. Let's use our banking skills and expertise to try and do something better. And so there's um, a regulatory regime in the UK, which is called open banking. Um, basically, what that is, is um, the uh, regulated opportunity for businesses like Snoop 
to access banking data with the customer's uh, permission on behalf of the customer um, and be able to use that data to the customer's benefit. And that's where Snoop came from, really. So we're um, acquiring at least a thousand customers a day at the moment. They give us access to all of their banking. We can bring all of their bank accounts into one place and look at their transactional data and see where they can spend better and save money. And we reckon we can save UK households about £1,500 a year as a consequence. So it's it's grown very strongly. Congratulations, that's amazing. And I guess that's why it made sense to launch during the lockdown, because people are feeling you know, financially a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah, well, what happened, it was very interesting. So people got really engaged, even before lockdown, people would come into our little offices at Waterloo Station and, and want to help us to build, you know, with face-to-face feedback. Um, and that had gone extremely well. And we were intending to launch actually end of May, beginning of June. But as you rightly say, Malika, people in the beta said to us, this is the time to launch. You know, you're giving us opportunities to save money. You're helping us to see where to shop better. While people are in lockdown, they really need that. So we were able to put the beta um, part of the system as it were the whole system that had been put into beta into the Apple store and onto Google Play quite quickly and so we launched on the 17th of April and uh, yeah it was, it's was it been great to launch during lockdown we've had a lot of positive feedback as a result of that I remember being particularly pleased that um, one of the things that we did very early on was that Morrison's the supermarket were giving uh, offering special offers to NHS workers uh, and we were able to see which of our customers were NHS workers and remind them of this. And they wouldn't have had, they told us they wouldn't have had the opportunity or the time to see otherwise that this was where they could get a better deal and they loved it. And things like that, yeah. you know, have made a real difference, I think. Was it difficult to lo- to launch during lockdown, though? You know, your teams couldn't work together. You couldn't be in the same room as your, as your staff. Well, I think... Um, the the really interesting thing is, if you'd have asked me beforehand, could we launch through lockdown when we don't aren't actually physically together? I'd have said no. It'll be really difficult, you know. In yeah. the past, I've launched businesses and systems with us all working through the night and Correct. you know everybody yes. being very intensely together. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think because the uh, platform had been built before lockdown and because we as a team there's 27 of us and almost all of us have worked together for many years previously Uh I think because we know each other so well um, and our vision has been very clear all the way from the beginning I think that sort of unity has really seen us through Uh, and as you say when you've got that sort of um, team together and you've got uh, a strong demand from customers actually it it didn't feel as well it's easy for me to say it wasn't too (laughs) difficult I wasn't the one that put it live but but it it went very smoothly And, and indeed you know we've been launching new versions of the system every two weeks since Uh, to continue to um, enhance the offering for customers and and that continues to go really well. Well, before Snoop, as you said, you had a long career as the CEO of Virgin Money. Before that, you were at Royal Bank of Scotland. You are regarded as one of the most successful and highly respected women in the financial services industry in Britain. And you write about your life in finance in a book called Virgin Banker. Why did you decide to write a book? What was your goal? 
To be honest, I think it was just um, a cathartic thing after my parents had died. So uh, my parents lived with us uh, until their death um, and they were both very well and then died suddenly within 17 weeks of each other. And um, the thing that was very interesting for me was that I I thought that was completely separate from um, the fact that one of my retiring colleagues had uh, said to me, not long after my dad had died, a few weeks after my dad died, he said, we always said we'd write down the story of Virgin Money and I've now retired, why don't I write the story? And uh, he said, before I do that, perhaps you could just sketch out the outline for me and then I can build it from there. And uh, my husband and daughter and I were going on holiday and uh, I thought, yeah, do you know what, I'll sketch out the outline for my friend Kevin. And as I started, it just sort of poured out. <laughs> there was no and outline, there was much more. There was no outline. <laughs> and I think, uh, for me, I found it very cathartic. And um, I suspect that had it not been for the death of my parents, I wouldn't have had that same need to sort of pour it all out. Um, but it, it all came out quite quickly in a fortnight on a beach. And uh, as a consequence, um, it felt like the right thing to do to publish it. And you write in your book, you say that you need true supporters to succeed. Well, that's one of the things you need to succeed. And so Richard Branson has been one of those champions in your life. How did he support you? Um, I think that the thing that I was always very aware of, particularly in the earlier days, and that lasted quite a long time, is that if you are working in a high-profile role for a high-profile person, they sort of walk in the door with you when you go to meetings. Mm-hmm. And do you know what I mean? I don't mean practically, but I mean yes. um, they support you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that I was always very aware that in representing Virgin, I was representing Richard Branson, if you like. And the things that uh, he stood for at the time, for sure, the, um, the challenge to the banking sector, the need to do good for the consumer, the um, absolute desire to make sure that people are treated properly and that we can grow a good business and a good economy. And I think those sort of values were the things that hopefully he and I shared and continue to share. The way he supported you, has that defined your leadership style? No, I don't think so. Um, Because, and and I think in the foreword to the book, actually, he says something like, we're, I can't remember the exact words now, but he says something like, Jane and I are very different, but we share the same vision or something like that. And I think that um, he is definitely much more laid back than I am. You know, he's... uh, got his work-life balance more sorted than I have. <laughs> uh, you know, he'll famously say that, uh, which way around is it? I think he works in the morning and plays in the afternoon or something. And for me, when I'm full on, I, I don't get too much of the time to play. And um, uh, so I'm probably more serious in many ways. And so there's there's a lot of difference there. But I think the real um, thing that means that we align is the need to do things better for the world. I remember just quite a small point, but an important one was um, we bought Northern Rock back in 2012 and um, he came to visit one of the branches and there was still glass between the bank teller and the customer. Uh, and I remember him saying then, you know, that's, that gives the wrong message. It implies that there should be a barrier between a bank and its customer. and We must break down barriers. 
And um, and I think those sort of things have always been where he's encouraged me to take the human step, not just the business step. Uh huh. So what what would you put at the top of your list when it comes um, to qualities you need to to succeed in the business world? Um, oh gosh, that's that. Well, that's very interesting. I'm I'm pondering on the moment at the moment on writing another book. Oh right. <laughs> And uh, I've been pondering on it during lockdown. And uh, if it helps, if I were to write it, I would call it a kind of capitalism. Uh-huh. I don't know yet whether I'd, I don't know whether I'd spell kind of K-I-N-D-E-R or uh-huh. K-I-N-D-A. But anyway, and um, it's becoming more and more clear to me that there are definitely two different ways of doing business. And um, one is, if you like, where... In some ways, businesses uh, seem to be success at all costs. You know, one business needs to be better than the other or, um, you know, there's a sort of win-lose mentality. And and certainly I experienced some of that when I was at RBS. You know, it was quite clear that we were in a battle to be the best bank or whatever. Um, and I, I do think that's a business of the past. I do think that sort of alpha male approach to business, it's driven profitability but has it driven um, discord in many ways? So my preferred way of doing business, but I do think it continues to be a difficult way, is to try and find alignment. And I was talking to someone this morning about my new business, Snoop, actually. We're just doing some work with Starling Bank. And they have trumpeted the fact that they are in partnership with Snoop. Well, you know what, we're tiny and we're thrilled that they've done that. And I just think that supporting each other as much as appropriate and possible, particularly in difficult times, but frankly always, has got to be the better way of doing business. And so I think people in business, in my view, it's important to work out which side of that line do you stand? Are you a succeed at all costs? In which case I do think it's about, you know, how do you drive the deal and how do you um, win, if you like? which I do think is perhaps a a bit of an old-fashioned way of doing things, or can we create a better future together through partnership and collaboration? And for me, networks and partnership have always been the way forward. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You are a trailblazer, Jane Ann, and it seems you started blazing the trail quite early. You were one of the first girls to attend an all-boys school. So tell us yes. about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention it, actually, because I find myself on a Facebook group page now with my f- old classmates. And, uh, oh, really? One of the boys, actually, who, of course, now is... A, I still think of him as one of the boys, but, of course, he's now 60 or something. <laughs> and uh, he's trying to he's trying to get us all to remember who he's sent around a, 
school photograph and is trying to do a you know who, who's who in, in this school oh, photograph so it's funny it's funny you should ask because it, as a result I've been thinking about school in the last couple of days there in a way go. that I haven't for ages um and um so what was it like uh I, well I would say that it was an experience that I didn't enjoy at the time um because you know I, I was in many ways, a uh, awkward um, misfit. <laughs> uh, very tall. We were girls, rather, you know, in a boys' school. You were six um, feet by the time you were fourteen, right? Six foot two, yeah, absolutely. So, so very tall, freak, very young, right? and 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 made to feel a freak, and that's hard, you know. People, you know, that was a very difficult time for me. The boys used to. Uh, scream at me um, in horror when they saw me. And I remember that being hard and feeling that I couldn't tell my mother about it because she'd be so upset about it. And of she was course. so happy that I was happy at school. Of you know course, what I mean? Of course. So I used to be, pretend to be happy at school and wasn't very happy at school. Um, but of course, what it really meant was that I learned how to deal with that. Yeah. And as I, I didn't, of course, didn't think about it at the time, but as I, as I look back on it now, and of course, some of the people, some of the boys that I've been in touch with on this group site are some of the boys that did that, you know, and that's the past. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Um, but um, as I look back on it now, I think that it taught me some lessons in resilience and what you need to survive in a world that you don't quite feel you fit into. And sometimes I felt like that in the world of business, I guess. How do you think those experiences when you were a teenager, how has that influenced uh, your career and your outlook to leading and succeeding in business, especially as a woman making it in a man's world and the financial services industry, as much as you've been leading the charge for gender equality, we're still not fully there. I, I think it's difficult to make that link. I, I think that where I've come to now, because don't forget, although school was a long time ago and uh, all of those experiences affect us, I don't feel I've answered all the questions myself, if you know what I mean. And um, what, one of the things that I've been reflecting on during lockdown is that th- there is no doubt that during my career, people have seen me as a difficult person, often referred to as a difficult woman, right? And I was saying to somebody earlier today, because I was reflecting on this, that um, the other thought I had about my book should be perhaps I should do a interviews with difficult women. I was, because uh, you think about Theresa May saying the same thing. I was watching the documentary about Hillary Clinton. She was definitely saying the same thing. And, and it made me think, are we really difficult? Or are we just different Exactly. Because I don't feel I'm difficult, right? I, of course, I just feel that I'm challenging things that I don't think are right. doesn't necessarily mean I'm difficult. It just means that I'm not what the established way of doing things sees as the right way of doing things. And I think that probably, you know, my experiences at school and uh, perhaps along the way have just given me the resilience to keep on being difficult and I do find, I mean, I continue to find that hard, whoever you are, however, whatever you've done and, and however old you've got to, I think that's still quite a burden to bear because we all like to be liked and all like to fit in. Uh, and I, I think that I quite awkwardly haven't quite fitted in ever and um, have somehow found a way to make that work broadly positively. <laughs> but, but I think it's really interesting as the world 
you know, grapples with Black Lives Matter and diversity in its fullest um, meaning. What, what I've experienced in, um, in my career is definitely what, you know, my husband's Indian and uh, I've seen, you know, other people experience too, which is, um, I think that the, the establishment, whatever we mean about that, the city, you know, which has so often been a preserve of, you know, white men largely who have been educated in similar ways together. And I think they'd be horrified to think that they've pushed out women or people from different backgrounds because they've opened their arms and said, no, come and join us, come and be like us. But of course, we don't want to be like them, do we? we what we want is... What we want is to be able to be ourselves in a world that's tolerant and accepting of that diversity. And I think we're miles away from that. But I have such a positive glimpse of the business world and the society and the general world that we can build once we understand how important it is to be able to properly bring together diversity for all that it means, not that some of us all have to fit in with everybody else. And I've always been somewhat uncomfortable about not fitting in. And it's made me realise there's a lot of people that don't fit into the prescribed way of doing things. And I think that's a good thing. And that not fitting in-ness may be the thing that we need now to create a new and innovative future. And I really hope so. When men don't fit in, are they called difficult? You rarely hear that, right? Very much so. And I've reflected on that too, you know, some of the things that people say I'm difficult about. If, you know, just because he's in the news at the moment, if Antonio Hortrosario said it as another banker, would he be difficult? I don't think so. Exactly. Um, he'd be, um, and so it, it is very interesting to think about it. And as I say, it was suddenly piecing together these um, statements that other women make that you think, right, we should try and work out how to address that, I think. I do hope you write a book about conversations with difficult women. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would, I, would, I, I quite like the thought. <laughs> I, I do too. I think you should do it. You mentioned your husband. Your husband's Indian. You guys met on your uh, in college on your first day at college. Is that right? That's right. I was 17. Uh, so goodness me, that's well, that's a long time ago now, for, 41 years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, still still going strong. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Um, and you also talked about diversity and inclusion. This is a really relevant time to talk about it. And I just wonder, what's your experience been of being part of a biracial marriage and a biracial family now? So I think it's fair to say that it's become less unusual over time. It was certainly unusual when we first got together. I mean, um, I remember when we first were working and left university, I um, uh, was uh, took articles, as they used to call it then, at uh, what is now EY. Um, and there was definitely very active racism at that point. People were horrified that I was going to be marrying an Indian man. I remember that very clearly and being heartbroken that that's the way that the world thought. Um, I remember actually um, being chased through the streets of Norwich by someone who said he wanted to kill me because of it and really? uh, running to find Ash. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can remember it very, very clearly. He was very um, direct in what this man, this man was very direct in what he was going to do to me. Um, and so I think I've experienced the worst of racism, but I think I've also felt that it's for me, got much better over time. Now, why is that? Is that because I've become, you know, part of a, a broader um, 
sect, if that's the right way of putting it, in the city. It doesn't feel as if it's noticed at the moment. Um, but it does make me feel uh, privileged to understand some of the differences that I realise others don't understand, if you know what I mean. So um, I do have... I do have also that sort of different challenge in my life around, you know, coming that comes from my husband or from his family because they live a different life to the life I was brought up in. Uh, and I do think that that gives you a different outlook and different challenges and different joys, really. Uh, and, I, and I love that. And as I say, if you can bring that into the workplace, then that would be fantastic. You've talked very candidly in your book and in numerous interviews about your experience with IVF and also with depression and these are subjects that uh, a lot of women still find very difficult to talk about. How difficult a decision was it for you to talk about this publicly? Oh well interesting so I didn't find it particularly difficult to talk about IVF. Um, That was um, you know super personal but ended up with the best thing that's ever happened to me which is the birth of my daughter so that feels like a joyous thing challenging but you know it had a happy ending and and I think yeah you know a number of women have talked to me about that and how do you keep going and I think you know being able to keep going on something that's so positive is is really important and you know it's nice to be able to have their happy ending to talk about um Mental health I found much more difficult and, you know, you remind me that in the book I talk about the need for support as well. There was a particularly um, strong supporter that helped me to talk about that and this was a journalist who had been working, he was quite a famous journalist and he'd been working in New York for a couple of years as I was, and as he came back to the UK, I'd just finished writing my book. He didn't know that but he took me out to dinner one night just to catch up and uh, we had a bottle of wine together and I said to him, you know, I've, I've written my book and what the one chapter I'm a bit worried about is that I've talked about um, postnatal depression. And we, I can picture it now, we were sat in a little Italian restaurant in Horse Ferry Road in London. And um, he said to me, well, while we sit here, you have a glass of wine, I'll read the chapter. And I'd got it on my tech. And so he read the chapter and he sort of flung the technology back over the table at me and he said, if you're going to do it, do it properly. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm a journalist. I write for a living. I can see that you've held back here. Really? So I said, oh, but if I do that, what will the city think of me? And he said, well, if you do it properly, I will run it and I will make sure that it's only received positively or that if it isn't received positively, we will work out why, because that's just not acceptable. And I'll help you. And if it hadn't been for him, I don't think I would have been as open about it as I have been because it is difficult for people and he did support me through and through and I think it's made a difference. And, you know, and people very kindly have said to me um, that it's made a difference to them because it is something that people don't talk about. I mean, very few men talk about it, let's face it, let alone, and you say women find it difficult to talk about. Um, And I'm really pleased that there has become much more normality, uh, let's face it, in many ways through the younger royals in talking about um, mental health, Uh, because I do think it's really, really important. It's funny, I'm saying to my daughter, while we've been in lockdown, I've been going out for a morning run. And um, one of the things that I've done during my morning run is sort of wrestle all of my demons to the ground. You know, all of the things that I've been worrying about, I've sort of straightened them up in my head, I hope. 
And I said to my daughter um, quite recently, but I've now sorted all these things out in my head. What do I do with the empty space? (laughs) (laughs) Now that the cobwebs uh, have gone. Yeah. She said, oh, mum, you you fill it with positive things. (laughs) Oh, yeah. One of the other things that's come up during the lockdown, and I quickly wanted to get your opinion on that, is the pink collar recession and how the lockdown has affected uh, women disproportionately. How worried are you that this is going to push women back quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, I th- there's two ways that I've been looking at it. So I did a piece of work on women in financial services back in 2016. Yes. One of the things that women said then was that it would make a big positive difference to their lives if they had the technology, which meant that they didn't always have to be in the office and they could be more flexible. Well, we've got that now. Um, and so in many ways, that's that's an issue I think that can really help, an issue that's been resolved so quickly that really can help women. We can now be flexible and work from home, as we all know, uh, in, in many, many circumstances. And that's going to be okay um, now. That's going to be accepted. Whereas I think earlier there was always a question yes. mark. It was okay in certain industries and certain companies, but... I think this will be a key moment, isn't it? For sure. I mean, interestingly, a friend of mine um, was on Zoom with me a few days ago, and he was a man who was horrified that uh, he was doing a piece of work and people had asked him to go and see them in order to get this piece of work done. And it was really interestingly, they were in Leicester. And of course, in the UK, Leicester's been locked down again. And he said, no, I really don't think I should be coming into Leicester. And he said he felt pressurised into doing it. He didn't do it. Um, and so it's to your point, I think it's really quite interesting that not only is it now accepted, if you like, that we can communicate like this, but it's sort of, in many ways, the right way of doing it, certainly in the short term, I think. you know. So I think that will help. I do think that will help in many ways. Um, but what we have to make sure is that uh, it doesn't become, as somebody put it to me the other day, that um, it, you no longer work from home. Your office is at home. Right, you know right. Actually, very well said. Yes. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think that we do have to be careful about that because it's possible, isn't it, that we think what we think about flexibility just brings more pressure because you're always on and there's nowhere to suddenly sort of release that. So... I think managing that uh, capability in a very positive way is important. And I do think, I mean, to your point about pink collar, there's definitely, um, I've heard friends say it, I've obviously read about it, you know, a concern that when there's fewer jobs and children to look after at home, that it may once again be the man that goes out to the job and the woman that stays at home and that could affect careers going forward. I don't think that's inevitable. Um, by any means. Um, And I think that we just have to, uh, you know, we have to be really clear that women shouldn't feel criticised if they do decide to stay home and look after their children. That's their choice. and It's the right thing to do for them. But if they do want to go out and work, then it should be as easy as it is for a man to make that choice too. And uh, I think I think we have to be really clear that for women that and men that want to stay at home, that's fine. And women and men that want to go out, that's fine. It's about equality. I know it's getting harder to switch off from work because, like you said, we are all working from home. But when you're not working, what do you do to relax? Well, I'm thrilled to say that I've enjoyed through lockdown getting back into running properly. Okay. And... Um, 
I, I've always loved running for mental and physical health, actually. And um, it's just been a real joy to be able to do that and not feel I've got to rush back, you know, get up early to do it and do it in the dark and rush back for a meeting, have a quick shower. Oh, gosh, no. Not, I've really enjoyed that. Um, and, you know, I, I've also found um, that I've always loved classical music and never really had time to properly listen to it, done that during lockdown, read a lot of books. So I feel I'm emerging a little better educated than, <laughs> than, than I was. I knew what I liked, but now I, I like it a bit more. So, so yeah, family is important. It's been, you know, I've enjoyed I think you started off talking about baking and gardening. We've done a bit of that as well. I so believe I think you're a terrific cook. Li- life. Well, my husband's much my husband's much better cook than I am. Oh, really? I'm delighted to tell you. <laughs> but you know, I think hasn't it? You know, for those of us that have been lucky through lockdown, and we have to remember that not everybody has been. Yes. But I've been quite lucky to be able to have a number of things, have have the time and space to do a number of things that I was never able to do in a what in the old fashioned work life that I thought I had to live and. Um, you know, I hope that that's changed for everyone now that we haven't always got to be rushing to get in for the eight o'clock meeting or being the last out of the door or on an aeroplane to San Francisco when we can see each other between London and Hong Kong as easily as this. Absolutely. Jenan, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. And to you, Malika, thank you so much for your time. That was Dame Jane Ann Gadia. What a conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office in the usual places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal and Twitter. This episode was produced by Jordan Gasparay. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'll be back next week. Till then, stay safe and thank you for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.